you really have a box there, John? Yeah, off camera. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, it's yeah. just off camera. Just got it here. Okay. Just off camera. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've got a box here. Look, there you go. Look, that's the box. Yeah. I got. I don't want to know box. what's in your box, Neil. I want you to tell me what's in my box. I've got right, loads so of my boxes. Box. <laughs> You're listening to the Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Welcome to another episode of the Occupational Philosophers, and as always, John, I'd like to know what's caught your curious eye this week. Hey, Simon. Well, what's caught my eye this week has been how great visual metaphors are as a means of communicating big ideas. So this, as you know, this follows on from the episode with Tanya, Tanya Chua, who was talking about visual literacy, visual learning. And I've been attending your very enjoyable, well-led whiteboard ninja course, as you know, as a new student, where I've been unleashing my drawing skills and sort of getting confident about putting marks on paper and conveying my thoughts visually, not worrying about making mistakes and finding it a real novel way to communicate big thoughts and ideas and concepts. So, and having a lot of fun, obviously, in the process. So, and I recently shared a big A3 outline of a 12 month leadership program with a client, just one picture, all sketched out, and all the lights went on. So, it was a brilliant moment where you kind of just saw. They could see what was going to happen in the program. They could feel what it was going to be like because I'd drawn little people with emotions and things. And that Ooh, brought it to life a little, a little here. Bit. As you know, that was lesson three. And they connected where they were to where they were going to get to. So I was able to do the, the classic pathway leading to some golden horizon that was su- suggesting success and team building and, and the like. So, yeah, I, I mean, aside to the fact that uh, my planes cars and horses are, are pretty shocking still oh, they're a work, just think a work in progress john a working a work in progress though. so so that was a bit, I, my, uh, but actually i'm not sure why i had a horse in there anyway but there we go so yeah why that's, not? that's what i was curious about this week is just yes visual metaphors to communicate uh, very very powerful so yeah not too funny but very enlightening how about yeah, you son well, just on that point, we, I read the other day we have 3,000 marketing messages a day. So you're competing with those each and every time you communicate. So if you use a visual, boom, you're ahead of a, a bunch of those marketing messages. Answer to yeah. your question, what's caught my eye is, from your part of the world, Snowasis, which was the Tan Hill Inn in Yorkshire. About 30 or 40 people went to an oasis a tribute band called Noasis, and they were snowed in for three days. And instead of maybe being sort of end of the world type scenario, they had a cracking time. And the people even want to make a movie about it now, but they were snowed in, they couldn't move, the snowplow crashed on the way to get them or went off the road. So they had three days of Oasis drinking, or not Oasis, uh, Snowasis, drinking, fun and games. And I just thought, how nice to embrace these little opportunities that life throws up at you. I know, I thought it was a nice little warm story because often you hear these things, oh, we're trapped in the airport for three days, hell, me and my family, but this was just all good vibes coming out of that. So I thought a nice, heartwarming, embracing adventure story. You think even after they played Wonderwall for the 15th time, they haven't lost lost their mind. If you're an Oasis fan, (laughs) you you don't mind that. And even uh, Liam Gallagher, jumped on and said he would have liked to have been uh, locked in as well. So uh, there you go. 
Now, enough of Snowasis. All right, John, We this is a guest episode this week. Who is the curious cat we have joining us? Well, as they say, gosh, where to begin? Today, Simon, uh, we have an extremely talented cat who's very funny, is award-winning, is a Guinness Book of Records holding individual, and it's Neil Malarkey. So I'm really delighted to have Neil here today. And uh, I'm going to say a few more things because there's quite a bit here and I'm going to miss some out, I know. But Neil co-founded the world-famous improvisation group, The Comedy Store Players, here in the UK, with Mike Myers, and later appeared with Mike Myers in the fabulous Austin Powers movies. He's appeared on TV over many years, on the likes of Have I Got News For You, Whose Line Is It Anyway, Saturday Live, QI. So again, lots of great TV episodes there. He's won awards for his alter ego, L. Vaughan Spencer, otherwise known as Elvo, a life coach, a self-help guru, a gangster motivator, <laughs> which I'm hoping to hear more about later. He's also highly accomplished in the field of management training. He runs many workshops and conferences for private and public organizations and uses techniques of theater improvisation to inspire people to embrace their creativity and enhance their communication skills. And he's become synonymous with bringing agility, innovation through improvisation to boardrooms and sales teams, some of the biggest corporations in the world. So, And it's a real roster of prestigious clients. You've got Google and Deloitte and GlaxoSmithKline and Microsoft, Vodafone, Saatchi and Saatchi. And above all of that, he cooks left-handed. He can tie a sheep shank knot blindfolded and puts the kneel in phenomenal. John, boom, boom. <laughs> so, so, Neil, welcome to the Occupational Philosophers. And I'm going to kick off with what's caught your curious eye this week. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, John, for that intro. Well, uh, your snow story was interesting because I was in Buxton here in the United Kingdom the other day. And I managed to speak to a taxi firm the day before. And then they said, actually, the road is closed. We can't pick you up. So uh, my client picked me up, who was driving down from Scotland, picked me up from Macclesfield. And it turns out he had spent three winters as an Arctic test driver. So this was no problem driving from Macclesfield to Buxton over the hills. So we were going over some pretty difficult terrain. And just at the brow of a hill, there was a car stopped. So foolishly, we stopped and said, can we help? Yeah, give us a tow, they said. And then we started slipping down the hill. And then we turned around, came up again, by which time they were driving down, coming straight at us. And I've got a webcam of this. So the snow wasn't particularly enticing to me. So we got bashed. They hit us once at the front and then side. We managed eventually to get to Buxton, which, by the way, is a beautiful place. And what was interesting is that the taxi firm said, tell your friend, don't go via the cat and fiddle. The cat and fiddle. And then my mum. My mum, who grew up in Crewe in the north of England, said, oh, the cat and fiddle, yes. So it's obviously some pub on the top of the hill that's the, the sort of peak on the way to Buxton. She said, I was in Macclesfield Hospital having my appendix out when I learned I got into teacher training college. And then Andy Smart, one of the comedy store players, I was stuck in the cat and fiddle, he said one time. He used to hitchhike from Liverpool to Buxton. And one time he got snowed in at the cat and fiddle and the guy gave him no Oasis songs, but plenty of sustenance dare i say so snow is a thing you mustn't laugh at nature that's my my learning from this <laughs> <laughs> that could be a hashtag don't laugh at nature we're collecting a collection of uh sayings we're going to put on t-shirts or so we're talking about so <laughs> i think that's a nice one and a great story 
Now, Neil, where are you in the world? I've gathered you're in England, but with uh, people listening from all over the globe, whereabouts in the UK are you? I'm in a place called London. Okay. (laughs) Never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I mean, I envy people who don't live in a city, actually. I love going to the country. I love the countryside. Today I'm going to go to Birmingham, which is the centre of England, and I see beautiful fields and trees and woods on the way out. So I used to live in the country in Sussex, grew up in Surrey, which was quite rural at the time. It's one of the, the home counties, one of the counties near England, uh, near London, rather, and uh, used to be quite rural. Then they built the M25 and the local playing fields that were owned by some London hospitals were, were bought by a, a football club called Chelsea. And that became their playing grounds or their training grounds. And so where I used to live is now just full of footballers. Is that, well, I'm not sure whether to lament with you or whether to or whether it's a, a good or a bad thing. So, so I, yeah, I live in London. But I live I live near a park. So I, during the lockdown, we could go running in the park every day. In terms of just building on maybe what I described in the introduction, Neil, how would you describe what it is you do? Well, I sometimes say comedian. So my children say, "What do we say?" But you say comedian, or management trainer author. None of these quite fit. I, for a while, I used to say improvocateur. Mm, um, I because like that. I, mm. I, yeah. Then somebody snaffled the, uh, the domain name. But I do improv, and I'm also a follower. One of my heroes is a guy called Frank Farrelly, who created provocative therapy, which is using laughter in therapy. So improvocateur sounded quite good, and provoking a reaction within businesses, trying to disrupt what may be some less than helpful routines they have. And would you say there's some intersections there, like for maybe three or four things you sit in the middle, like you've got improv, comedy, are there some other things that might sit around that? Well, yes, I come from the world of comedy and I went into doing sketch comedy and then I met Mike Myers and he taught me improv. We formed the Comedy Store Players and then I realised improv was my thing and then I realized improv could be helpful outside the stage in people's teams in terms of creativity, communication, confidence, and understanding how to deal with an uncertain world. So I guess those sort of all became part of what I do, that I discovered there were lots of management theories about how organizations are not machines. And guess what? Improv then comes in handy. So if you can learn the skills that people have used for decades on the stage to create emergent theatre, emergent narrative, could you use that in business as well? I've gone quite serious, quite heavy, quite early, haven't I? Apologies about that. <laughs> That's all right. We're, we're, all, we're all got a sad face, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we peaked too early. No, all good, all good. <laughs> well, but I do want to come back to the improv because I know the roots of improv, Neil, proceed its sort of familiarity within comedy isn't it? it's viola spolin back in the 20s in chicago and it was something as an educational tool with groups of children is that right you're absolutely right john you've done your research it started with a social worker in chicago viola spolin and she was a follower of neva boyd who was an educationist who had this radical idea that children at school should have playtime <laughs> unthinkable really but then she was helping these children maybe they were not native speakers she was giving them these exercises to give them confidence to speak up in class and her son by 1959 had created what became second city theater company 
Second City, which is the home of improv. I didn't know that. I knew that they did sketches because I found out about Saturday Night Live. I love a film called The Blues Brothers. And I found out that the people from that have been in Saturday Night Live. And actually, a lot of people had come from Saturday Night Live, including Alan Alder from MASH. And a lot of people from Saturday Night Live had come from Second City. And so I knew about it. And then there was this guy. I uh, mentioned his name already, but I was doing a show with my erstwhile chums from Cambridge University at a tiny theatre in Notting Hill in London, a pub theatre. And there was a guy selling tickets. He was sitting there in a wheelchair because we'd used all the regular chairs on the stage. He wasn't a wheelchair user himself, but sitting there, hat and scarf, really <laughs> cold because it was England in the 80s and not everyone had central heating. And then he, he just got chatting to me and he said he'd come from Second City, Canada. And he was amazed I'd heard of it because most British people hadn't, but I didn't know it was improv. And we started talking. He made me laugh. He's a funny man. And then he was telling me about the joy of improv. And we said, let's do a double act. We called him Malarkey and Myers for some unknown reason. And we spent hours creating a three minute sketch. But then by, by that stage, it was pretty tight. And then our first open spot, a tryout spot, we didn't know we had three minutes. So we had to do two minutes improv. So Mike was improvising and my head was spinning. I literally was going to fall over. I didn't know what to say or anything. I hadn't done this before. I went to an improv course and along with Paul Merton and Dave Cohen and Kit Hollaback, we started the Comedy Store Players in 1985 before Simon was born. And Too the <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was the, my experience of improv. So it started with a social worker, and so in many ways, many of us who are going, there's a whole applied improv network. We're taking that original impetus and using it in all sorts of different ways in mental health spheres, in the penal system. Creativity is the obvious one, perhaps, but there's a whole lot of practice in the applied improv world of how do we embrace human creativity, how to embrace fallibility, vulnerability. I've even written down what you said, John, don't worry about mistakes. You're talking about your art and how many would-be artists, whether in visual or other media, are worried about the mistake. And often the mistake is the best thing. If you see improv, you'll see we, we mistake miss here. You can't think of the word and you say chicken or whatever, and then chicken becomes the whole basis of the joy of the scene. And one of my bugbears, I guess, in organizations is they're not open to serendipity. Whereas we in the arts, we know a mistake, happenstance could be the greatest breakthrough, but you have to be attuned to looking for it. And they're not looking for it often. They're looking for something that perhaps has been done before or can be justified in certain forums, you know, budgets being one, etc. But often it's a shame because ideas may get lost mm. yeah I, I love that and look what this reference for john is i'm a, a call myself a recovering professional artist so i studied fine arts and then like your your good self wandered into the the corporate uh land where i saw that connection for this way of thinking but i think the arts actually taught me how to think so ignore what i produce it taught me how to think and i guess the one that probably the key thing which came out of that is be really curious because you don't know what will happen when you try stuff and mistakes are normal like, and that's what I've said to John when he joined me, I now teach people to illustrate, like draw out your thoughts because it's really productive and great use of time. We get there quickly. But I say, if you draw, you make mistakes. If you walk, you will move. If, if, you, <laughs> if you stand up, you'll be higher than you were before. If you draw, you'll make mistakes. So it's this whole piece around, um, 
I guess, you know, different to improv, but that same mindset of if you do stuff, you will make mistakes. But within those mistakes, there is joy, there is innovation, there is insight, there is things mashing up against each other. So, and that that's that, I guess, that serendipity of being open to that and seeing what comes of that. Just coming back a little earlier in life, Neil, you've mentioned some people and moments there that were sort of experiences along the way. Can you go back a little bit further? I mean, school, early life, academia, was there particular experiences that formed you along the way or that you could recall sort of, you know, now maybe in with hindsight was sort of taking you down a certain path? Or? I think a big thing was being in the school play. I got into the sixth form and I was in the school play and I could be funny. And I was studying physics, chemistry, maths at the time I chose those at A-level. In in the United Kingdom, you you have to choose three or four subjects at a fairly early age. So I was thinking I'd be a doctor. And then I was on stage and I found I could make people laugh and I liked it. And I heard about this thing called the Cambridge Footlights that the Monty Python were in and actually many people since then, like Olivia Coleman, Sasha Baron Cohen, Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson have all come from as well. So that's my parents. My mum actually, her teacher training college was in Cambridge called Homerton, now part of the university. My father was a a scholar in the 50s at Cambridge University, an orphan scholar. And uh, that's how they met. So I knew about Cambridge, but I knew about the footlights and it sounded great. It sounded great. You could do this and you could write sketches and it was going to be fun. And didn't tell my parents. I gradually, gradually said, that's what I want to do. And then at the end of the first year, I went to the chip shop. And there was Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry. And Hugh said, oh, by the way, do you want to be on the committee? <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, it was because you had to do what's called a smoker. Uh, you write a sketch on the Tuesday or you, you perform it on the Tuesday afternoon in front of whoever, the committee. And this time it was Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. And they said, that's good. Come and do it tomorrow night, Wednesday night. So you have newbies trying to try out material. And you have the committee, you know, the established people trying material, which then end up in the end of year review. And so I got to be on the committee. And then while in the second year where I was with Tony Slattery and he was president, I was co-wrote the Panther, was in, was in the Panther with, with the rest of the, the committee. And there were lots of people who were studying anything but drama. I just want to do it for fun. But it was thinking, this is what I want to do. My dad said to me, is this what you want to do? And I said, yeah, because he'd always said you must follow what you want to do by this stage i hadn't done medicine i'd done economics and what i really wanted to do was social science so you can see now that my interests were emerging so social science was interesting to me because how do we get on with people how do societies and groups organize themselves how do things develop uh, anyway i got to be president so i directed the panto which i loved i had a small part but i directed people who didn't want to be actors but were interested in trying stuff out so the, the, the footlights was the thing. It's very fortunate to be in the footlights because people say, oh, we'll go and see the footlights at Edinburgh. People come watch us who might be looking for new talent. And then we toured to a lovely country called Australia. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to list the places we played, Simon. That was just wonderful. Adelaide, Tasmania. We went to Hobart. Launston, I'm from Hobart. Uh, yeah. Are you really? And yeah, we went yeah. to, there we go, and Bernie. And then we went to Canberra, Sydney for three weeks, and Wollongong, Mittagong, Rockhampton, Gladstone, yeah. Darwin, 
just a wonderful thing for a young lad to do. And then I got my equity card, which you needed to get. And then I was doing this show at the small theatre in Nottingham when Mike had seen Cambridge Footlights. He'd heard of that and came along and he'd asked, can he help? And they said, yeah, you can sell tickets, but maybe before they do the painting, he was painting our set. <laughs> so um, that's what I wanted to sell. I didn't really have a background. And my mum, I remember my friends would tease me. I heard my mum on the phone just after I graduated to a friend said, oh, yes, Neil. Yes, he's trying to break into show business. And <laughs> it was, oh, dear. And I remember her saying, why don't you do theatre administration, which was a great vote of confidence in my performing ability. But actually, in hindsight, would I have been better off doing that? Because I could have done the theatre, but also my organising brain, which people will tell you I have, could have come into play as well. But in some respects, I've gone away from being a full-time performer, but I, I wouldn't give it up completely. I still like being a bit cheeky and naughty, but I like doing the other thing, which is a bit more organized, a bit more cerebral. But on the other hand, none of my workshops lacks in laughter. The podcast here proving quite the opposite but uh, <laughs> um, we're, wonder we're wondering what those testimonials are all about. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I know when people are laughing, they're learning. But also, actually, when it boils down to it, if I help people have a laugh for half a day, that's my job done. Yeah. People will often say, you know, well, that was great stuff. You're talking about listening and collaborating and diversity and sharing your agenda. But you know what? We don't laugh enough. And I, I've spent 20, over 20 years doing this. And I'm thinking, if I've done nothing more than help people have a laugh, then I can be proud. Yeah, and I said that to a group today. I said, don't be alarmed if you find yourself having a good time. Might feel a bit <laughs> unusual, but that's okay. Now, I'm hearing all these sort of mashups and intersections. And if there was just, and it's really interesting, this picture which sort of starts to form. If there are three words that could describe you at school, what were those three words? I think they'd say clever, funny, cheeky. I was clever. I did. I was at a, a school, a selective boys' school. So clever wasn't a bad thing, shall we say? Uh, funny in class and then in the play. Cheeky to teachers. I would get in trouble sometimes, but not real trouble. You know, yes, not real trouble like uh, being sent out of the class or whatever. But just a bit. Oh, malarkey. That's enough now. That kind of thing. But I realised uh, there was power in funny. You could get people to listen. <laughs> you could get people to take note i suppose that was it <laughs> so it's a form of mind control <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly it is it's, 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 i mean now i'm at an age when i think well, why would you want to be a comedian why would you want to have a room full of strangers staring at you and a lot of comedians a lot of performers are quite shy they don't want to talk to people one-on-one -on -one. they don't find that forum comfortable but a bunch of strangers en masse laughing what a curious thing, because most people would find that completely terrifying, wouldn't they? They do, and I, I help them try and overcome that. Why would you want to do that? I don't know. Well, what is the power you have? And people are laughing with you. You talk about that quite a bit. I know they're about how it needs to be uh, unifying humour rather than divisive humour is the thing that's missing in workplaces. Sometimes the, 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 the talking behind the back is the stuff actually that isn't the stuff that's the humour that organisations are looking for. It's the stuff that recognises the common fallibilities and the humanness of us all and draws us all together. And that's good. Yeah, that's that, – well, obviously, I agree. The <laughs> thing that people get scared, you know, we've booked Neil Malarkey, a comedian. That's why I'm never quite sure what to say in answer to your earlier question. <laughs> 
they think, oh, no, we're going to have to learn to tell jokes. And I said, no, you don't have to learn to tell jokes. Oh, it's a drama workshop. I've got to pretend to be a tree. No, <laughs> if you want to be a tree, that's fine. You know, serendipity. <laughs> but humour divides people because people say, I haven't got much of a sense of humour. I don't like that comedian. Or humour can be bullying. And I wouldn't call that humour. Banter. Banter. It's divisive. It's, it's inappropriate. Of course, the real humour to me is far from divisive. It's unifying. It's saying we're all fallible, as you said there. Uh, humour also is somehow frivolous. If we're laughing, we're not working. And of course, you know, often a great idea comes with laughter. Oh, yes, of course. Why not? Or when we're laughing together, all the research tells us we're laughing together, we're more creative and ideas will come. So there's a lot of fear of humour as being possibly divisive and obstructive or destructive. And of course, the opposite is true when, when handled in the right way. So people being horrible to somebody saying, oh, it's just banter. No, it's not. It's just horrid. And I, I often think around when we talk around the taking ideas further and in Australia, and we're not too different in our humour in many ways. I think we're a little bit more abrasive in Australia. Someone will suggest something, everyone will crack up and they'll go, oh, nice one, dickhead. Where did that come from? Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then everyone will have a good old laugh. Huh? We, uh, we're banter, Aussies. We have a laugh at ourselves. Problem is that bit of creativity of that idea has gone so there's humor at someone's expense but i find that humor at someone's expense of their idea that kills creativity who inspires you now you mentioned a whole raft of people there many of who you met through cambridge footlights and then into the world of improv and like other particular people now that inspire you in either what you do just or just generally the person who introduced me to provocative therapy is a guy called Brian Kaplan, and he's written a book called Almost Happy. So he's a doctor who studied homeopathy. He studied all sorts of psychology, but he also uses provocative therapy. And this book is called Almost Happy. It's quite, kind of how we u- he uses provocative therapy, which is a bit like reverse psychology. So it was his inspiration. He introduced me to Frank Farrelly in, in the 90s. Frank has passed away now. But it was their inspiration that you, it's okay to use humour to heal, which sounds portentous, but when we're laughing, we're feeling better. It's okay to always this guy, Frank Farrelly, would do things, he, and he created this, having come from a psychoanalytic background and then from a Roger, Carl Rogers, who's client-centred counselling, and then was working in a state mental hospital, was seeing the same clients over and over, and it was really tough. One Friday afternoon, this guy came in, Oh, yeah. And then Frank went, oh, shut up. You'll never get out of here. <laughs> and, the, and the client, the patient went, yes, I will. And it was the first time that this man had actually sat up and said, I can get better. And so Frank began to investigate how do we use humor to make people feel better? And the, again, the misunderstanding called it provocative therapy. Sounds like you're goading people, poking them with stick, but you're provoke finding helping them find their voice and so you say things like smoking you want to give up smoking oh no you'll never get smoking it's far too difficult in fact you should be smoking more or you might say smoking <laughs> or you'll never go up smoking or, or, or you know or whatever and so things you kind of and of course then the client goes actually do i want to give up smoking why aren't i giving up smoke i can't just blame my past i, I it's me and the whole ethos is it's within you and so I've, I, that has been my inspiration, I suppose, in all my workshops, gentle teasing, trying to tease the truth out of somebody. In my coaching, certainly, you assume that the coachee has their 
has the answer somewhere within them and they haven't quite let that voice speak or something like that. So, so right now I'd say that's just that book's there. I'm inspired by Brian, but he's been a big inspiration, especially introduced me to Frank in the last 20 years or so. I would say more broadly, I'm a bit odd. <laughs> Which you might not we do. Oh, it's perfect for this show, Neil. We're, we're like odd. I, Welcome. being a comedian, Welcome. come on in. Being a comedian and having spent a lot of the time in those 80s, 90s watching stand ups, I find it hard to watch much comedy because I can see the cogs turning. So I like the ones at the edge or the just pure classic things like Frasier. If I want a la- guaranteed laugh, I'll sit down and watch Frasier or Seinfeld. These just make me laugh. Those things inspire me. But in a way, also nowadays, I'm, I'm reading nonfiction. I watch documentaries. I'm just amazed by what happens in the world, what people are discovering, and then, you know, what's happened in the past. So that, those, my, those might be my inspirations. Hey, it's time for a thought experiment. And look, we love to follow in the long line of uh, great philosophers who do experiments to push their thinking. Like, let's say our main man, Albert Einstein, sort of experimented, thought about him shooting off on a beam into space and the way it sort of shifts our mind. So we have a thought experiment. John, would you like to introduce this one? Yes, Neil. So I've heard you speak before about how organisations are often very keen to think outside the box, that idea of blue sky thinking and what's the ideas that are out there. But uh, actually, what you were suggesting is uh, what's missed is often what's inside the box already. And then you go on to talk about how improv is really trying to help us get the most of what's within. So we have a number of boxes in front of us. I've got a number of boxes here just off, off camera. And we'd like to ask you, what's in the box? Uh, what would you do with what's in the box? Okay. All right. You ready? Now? Okay. Okay. Just to I'm be just clear here, uh, do we have an edit button here in case I'm completely rubbish? No, this is, uh, this is improv. This is live. Oh, okay. What's in the box? Do you really have a box there, John? Yeah, off camera, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yes, yeah. just off camera. I've just got it here. Okay. Just off camera. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've got a box here. Look. There you go. Look, that's the box. Yeah. I, got I don't want to know box. what's in your box, Neil. I want you to tell me what's in my box. I've got right, loads so of my boxes. Box. <laughs> Color coded at the back. Yeah. So I've got a big white right. box here. Look at that. <laughs> There's a there's a big box. That's in here. Box. Right. Well you'll you'll, look, you'll be you'll be really good at this thought experiment. I've got look, I've got Ethernet cable. I've got boxes yeah, I know. Every everyone's got a cable box. We've all got a cable yeah, box. I've, that's my big cable box. This 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 box is my little cable box. Uh, all right, there we all are. Right, all right, another right. box full of I'll pens. show you the box, all right? I'll show you the box. There's the box, okay? Right. <laughs> it's not a box off, but you do have a good collection of boxes. Yeah. My, my oh. boxes are better than yours. <laughs> I've got, you've boxed me senseless. Right, okay. I have so box, box number okay. one. Box number box one. Box number one. It's, it's there. There it is. Schrodinger's Schroding, okay. box. Schrodinger's yeah. box, Neil. And I know you know this. So... It has a cat inside it, but the question is this, Neil. Is it a live cat in the box or is it a dead cat? Can you uh, tell us what your answer is, please? It's a live cat. I have. To, that's who I am. I think in life, not dead. Um, I'm sorry. It's dead. Oh. 
What are you going to do with what's in the box? <laughs> Dead cat. Well, Linton Crosby, the polling guy, doesn't he say put a dead cat on the table to keep people's attention away from the other thing? So I put it on the kitchen table. Actually, I was on a holiday once in Mallorca, and there was this poor cat, and my friend was really good, and she'd try and feed it water, and then it died. And a dead cat really is quite stiff. Rigor mortis sets in quite quickly. So we had to, I had to pick it up and put it in a bin and, and try and find some sort of burial place for it. So I don't, why, what kind of podcast is this? You're killing cats. What, what are you? What, Schro- what Schrodinger's, cat. Schrodinger's cat. That's just, a, that's it's quantum a, uh, physics. It's quantum, quantum physics. physics. I know, but uh, the thing is, um, Schrodinger was saying that the cat could be dead and alive. And, and so keep the box shut. And we can live with the ambiguity. You've just killed my cat. Well, let's try another box because we like to look, see what's inside the box now. I promise no more dead cats, Neil. No more dead cats. All right. Well, I mean, what? If I'd said it was, if it was, well, if I'd said it was dead, would you have said it's alive? And then I'd have to deal with that. I I would stroke the cat. He's found us out, Simon. (laughs) Well, let's try another box. Let's try another box. Now, there's... A uh, box to my right. Uh, it's an Amazon Prime box now. It's, it's quite large, about size of a sort of a, a bar fridge. What three things are in the box? Uh, are these things I want, or because I'm all down now with this dead cat thing? So, uh, what, a, 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 what do you mean by a bar fridge? Is it like a mini bar? Yeah, like a mini bar fridge. Yeah, like okay. sort of sits. I guess like a full size fridge in England that sits under your bed. <laughs> In Australia, we call that a mini fridge. Yeah, a mini fridge. Well, oh, does it have to be a fridge though? Because I was going to say red wine. So I like no, red no. Wine. It's about the size of a fridge. The box. So it's got red wine in it. Yep. <laughs> okay. I don't have red to wine. find two other things I like. Yeah. Yeah. Because oh, I was, I'd like to have some reflexology in the box. Can I? Okay. I love people <laughs> yeah. doing that to my feet. Don't you love that? I love it, <gasps> and I'd like. Yes. I was just thinking that I put that on my Christmas list. Some reflexology, reflexology. and. Uh, Oh, I'm just thinking about Christmas is now. A DVD of uh, Jean de Florette, the French film. All right. Can I have that? You can. It's like Desert Island Discs. Well, (laughs) let's see what's in this box. Uh, No, no, there's that that was wrong. There's a tomato quiche, an extra large wombat, which is alive, and an electric drill. Now, what could you do with these things? Right. Well, I've actually seen a wombat. So when I was. We went on holiday to Australia a few years ago, and we did a tour based from Sydney and of uh, the Blue Mountains and then New South Wales. And there, this tour guy, we went at night, and he got friendly with this wombat. So I, I was as close to a wombat as I am to <laughs> you, except you were <laughs> miles away. So I love wombats, but why? Why have I got a? So I've got a tomato quiche I would eat. Yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got a drill. I don't know what to do with that. I've no idea what to do with that, but I. I don't want to get involved with the drill and the wombat. I just, I'd say hello to the wombat. Do wombats eat tomato? I think probably not. The drill I'd ha- I passed to a handy woman, probably. My wife, when I moved in, she said, where's your uh, toolbox? I said, I haven't got one. Um, I've, got, I've got a screwdriver. I can change a plug. That's all I can do. So did, what, did you want me to do something with the drill? Oh, yeah. No, that, that that that's pretty good. That's pretty no, you good. Did we'll, it, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll run with that. That's that. Uh, we'll, we'll run with that. John, you've got what about the our last box, the shoe box? I got a what's shoe, in the shoe box. Shoe, the shoe box now. That shoe box. So what's in the what's in the box? 
<laughs> Neil, what's in the box? I've got a shoe. That last box. Yeah. Oh, a shoe box. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I probably have. What do they call the the things you put you, slides? Slide know. sliders. They're not sliders. Yeah, like flip flops, but you don't have that yeah. annoying thing between your toe. Yeah. So yeah. I. <laughs> that would mean I'm probably somewhere warm. So I'm okay. probably on holiday. There we are. How about that? Am I extemporizing here? I'm probably in Greece. There we are. I'm walking in the sl- I'm, the shoes. There they are. I'm walking from the room to the swimming pool by way of the b- buffet. How's that? So we'll have a buffet, hell? some sliders, and grease in there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> are you writing these? Are you, what, are you yeah. psychoanalyze me we're, based on we're, all we're this? Cro- we're cross-referencing <laughs> what's in the box. Have a look well, at the I'm, box. I'm, I'm just going to open it now. Oh, sorry, no. We've got a small trifle. Uh, we've got a, a bus ticket from Wollongong to Australia and a catapult. Oh, that who, sounds nice. Know. Yeah, what, do you, what will you do with what's in the box, Neil? Small trifle. Uh, Bus ticket will have gone to Adelaide and a catapult. Catapult, I don't know. I'd probably see how far I can send something. I'd have to get a stone, I guess. I'd kill Goliath, would I? I don't know. Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. I eat the trifle. The ticket, I get on the bus. I get on the bus. Get on the bus. Get on the bus. Why not? Fantastic. Sounds a great yeah, bus. Excellent. Is there, and, is there a last one? Should we see if Neil can get one right? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> sure, We've, I had, mean, we've had some guests in our time. But <laughs> well, I failed dismally. Well, well yeah, just say, just Michelle Obama, okay. she was a lot better at this. Okay. So okay. now, <laughs> finally, we have the very, very, very large box. What's in it? Yeah. Oh, a, a large big, box. Big. A big box. So so big as a car. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, I, I'd say a nice garden chair to sit in my small garden that would be nice just a recline thing you know like and sit back yeah. and it's there's there's cushions and i can put my feet up there's a foot up bit at the bottom Ooh, yeah. how does that work yeah. did michelle obama help. say that as well good oh we we can't say it might influence you what's in the box so. <laughs> a nice recliner, right. garden recliner. O- open it up simon okay Neil, you're right. There is a nice recliner ah, in the box. Well done. That's amazing. And that brings us oh. to the end of what's in the box. Neil, so I know you're well known for obviously the skills in improvisational comedy. Do you have times when then you're creating solo or is even Elvo a collaborative process? Put from a creative process point of mind, how does that work? I like doing things on my own, I have to say. So I, I write stuff on my own. I write articles and so forth. And that wasn't the immediate thing. I used to write Double Axe, Mike Myers, Nick Hancock, Tony Hawks here in the UK. Elvon Spencer, I wrote reams of script and then gave it to somebody called Kate Coleman. And she run or used to run a charity, which is still going actually, called Seen and Heard. And this was about using theatre to enable deprived children or children who are in difficult circumstances. So they get to write a play. They'd have a mentor for six weeks. They write a play. Twelve-year-old children, whatever, professional writer, which was then put on. And it was a great empowering thing. And I thought, if you can do that for 12-year-olds, you could do it for me. So she kind of helped me collate it. She's a dramaturg. So so she directed the first few performances and that's how we got it. So even a one-man show was co-created. But So I do like to collaborate, but also it's frustrating. You know, if sometimes I talk to writers who have been in double acts and they'll go, oh, it's such a relief not to have to listen to him, (laughs) that kind of thing. So, you know, there's pros and cons here, as I'm sure 
Simon feels with John in many ways, this podcast would be much better without, you know, the dead weight of this British guy. But I guess, you know, maybe he's, uh, he's good with cats or something. Uh, so there's pros and cons. Uh, it's kind of, it depends on the voice you want, if you like. So I like writing on my own and that, but it's harder. It's harder. It's more satisfying in some respects. You don't know if what you've written is rubbish though. So I try and look at it again later as if I were a different person. And so I love editing my own stuff and getting rid of that rubbish and then rewriting. Because any writer, any creator will tell you it's much easier to edit, to rejig than to write the first thing. I don't know if Picasso said this, but I quote it as if he did. Picasso said that the paper defends its whiteness, which is the first time is hard. And so that's why I love it when artists just say, do a squiggle. Now move the paper around. Oh, look, the squiggle looks like something. And that metaphor to me is great, is don't try and be creative. Just start the walk, as you said before. So, yeah, I do like doing things on my own. I love collaborating. In terms of improv, it's very collaborative, but it's gone. It's gone. Mm. The show is there. We do it. People go home. So that's quite different. So I haven't collaborated with anyone for a while, other than editors who might put red lines through bits I've written for a book or editors of websites or whatever who might rejig some material I've written for a blog. So... In answer to your question, maybe yes, no, perhaps. Okay, that, well, that, that takes us to our next question. Perfect. And I'm, I'm interested when you when we, we we improv, we we think on my feet, we think on we feet, think on our feet, and we make new connections, and you see things that other people miss in this world of improv. But look, that doesn't happen by accident. So, what are the habits that build the muscles of improv? Like, what happens outside that that helps you to be in that space? Well, it's interesting because you realize after having done improv for a while, the small things can make a difference. And then you start taking that to just chatting to people and you're looking for little nuggets that may mean something. And you kind of, you pick it out like an improviser in, in a scene. And, oh, that's interesting. You've, you've mentioned chickens. You've talked about mitigong. You raised your eyebrow when you mentioned lettuce or something <laughs> and so i'm looking for those kind of things so definitely i'm aware that the improv mindset says we can use anything it's literally instead of saying creating stuff it's looking in that box and finding what's already there so i love to do that on the stage from small beginnings you can get a whole story in conversations just little nuggets people give you begin to help get some sort of commonality and you can draw somebody out by just noticing the small things they do and then when i did a coaching course at ashridge business school here in the uk i came across a thing called gestalt have you heard of gestalt oh yeah yes love yes. yes and they talk a lot about the figural which is when you're talking to somebody you you may hear what they're saying and then you notice that just there's a tiny thing in the way they said it the energy they brought um and that is important that's that's information and then similar to provocative therapy in a way is that a throwaway comment could be less than uh much more than throwaway rather so that sense of talking of all oh, right just the way you said his name or you looked away when that thing came up that's important information and we know from the theater that tiny movements of the body the face the eyes inflections are in the vocal delivery can mean a lot. So uh, I've attuned myself on the stage and now find that I can bring that to everyday life. I know that you're from some of the talks that you're clearly very 
widely read and curious. You talk about, you give philosophical quotes, you quote writers and thinkers, etc. And there is something that you're really sort of drawing out from improv that is quite profound. I wonder if, is there a favourite school of philosophy or philosophers, as we are the occupational philosophers, that, <laughs> again, that you that you see resonates with improv and where its impact is being felt? Um, God, that was a that was a that was a long, difficult question, wasn't it? I know. It was, I mean, hopefully they can cut that out at some point when I just go uh, like, uh, I'm not sure. I like to steal. I'll steal from anybody. That's the thing. And in terms of philosophical things, um, I have to say that when I studied Marx, because I did sociology, Marx was influenced by Hegel, and people might be going, "Oh no, who is this terrible?" communist but hegel turns out didn't have a particularly clean track record in certain areas but his idea of thesis and antithesis and from that comes synthesis which again is one of the things i most like in life is that everything is it's got an opposite and the opposite may be contained within so yin and yang positive and negative light and dark whatever but hegel sort of talked about the which Marx then took about the contradictions in capitalist society between capital and labor, but it, and that leads inexorably to the next stage. But what I liked about it is that the philosophical notion that everything we see has got something contained within it is the opposite. And quantum physics would have this as well with electrons spinning one way and then the other way. And that kind of thing, which is whatever you think is right, there's an element of it that's wrong, <laughs> which, and Jung as well talked about the shadow and what I like about that is that any character trait which you think is good, like courage, the shadow of courage is recklessness. The shadow of decisiveness is insensitivity. And that leads to Myers-Briggs, for example, which is a personality profiling thing. So I guess philosophically, I like anything that says, I'm not really sure. <laughs> says, uh, and, and in fact, there was a guy, what was he called? Was he Ted? I can't remember. He's an Englishman living in New York, Tony Height, I think he said, I'd like to join a party. I'd vote for a party that says, we're not entirely sure. Whereas uh, so much of <laughs> politics and now social media has to be, we know everything. This is how it is. And if you disagree, you're a baddie. And I assume bad faith. Whereas I, uh, I kind of, as you can tell by my waffling on, when I say something and then say, well, actually, I'm not entirely sure that's right. Because <laughs> it, it depends on the context. And so, that's why, for example, Ashridge, they, they talk about relational coaching. You can borrow from Gestalt. You can borrow from solutions focus. You can borrow from psychoanalysis. But ultimately, it's the relation between you, the coach, and the person that matters. And that is contextual. And that's changing all the time. So philosophically, I haven't answered your question in any way <laughs> other than to say embracing ambiguity is my favorite thing. But actually, uh, no, it is really interesting you're saying that, Neil, it, and it maybe runs alongside the reason for that question is, um, I think it was, again, just listening to some of the previous talks where you just say, look, you're saying bad things happen. And so we then improv is very much about saying, look, this has happened. What can we do with it? How can we make something of it or draw some some good out of it, if you want? Good being subjective word. But And um, I felt that felt quite stoic almost but almost an improvement on stoicism because stoicism just says bad stuff happens get on with it <laughs> whereas <laughs> improv says bad stuff happens what can we do with it and it seems quite <laughs> optimistic it's it yeah, speaks I, to being more resilient and does that make sense 
that makes sense. I do follow Marcus Aurelius on Twitter. <laughs> oh, <laughs> hey, fantastic. Marcus, um, he's been on. He's been on the podcast. <laughs> and I love it when people quote Seneca as well. So I guess the, the ancient <laughs> philosophers are of interest to me. Uh, I'm just trying to look around, see if I can pull anything out of the bag in terms of philosophers. But or also the box. From the, yeah, and if, as, I've got a box here, but this is just full of wires. So, and, a, um, and a wombat and a key. There's a wombat. And a, I'm just looking. What am I doing with that trifle? What the hell am I going to do with the catapult? So philosophically, um, what you said, interesting there, There's a, I don't know if you described this person or indeed any of the, the people I might mention as philosophers. They're called maybe practical philosophers. There's a guy called Steve Peters. Steve Peters wrote a book called The Chimp Paradox, which is fantastic because he's a psychiatrist who's worked with sports people, cyclists, but he's, he's got this metaphor that there's a chimp in us who reacts irrationally, immediately beyond our control. We can't stop it, but we can manage it. And then there's a computer and then there's the human being. So the chimp is what reacts immediately and gets angry and snatches things and stuff. And then seven to 10 minutes later, you go, oh, I didn't mean to do that. And so when you said the bad things happen, he said, you put in your computer every day, you program your computer, which is bad things could happen. People, that things are going to be unfair. How am I going to deal with it? Rather than the chimp says, that was a bad thing. I want to punch somebody. And so he had a great example about in the Tour de France, couple of cyclists at the front and for some reason one of the coaches cars or whatever they're called knocks off the two leading cyclists the cyclist he'd been coaching had sort of put into his computer something may happen outside my control that's not fair so how am i going to program myself to react to it and so he did ow that hurt i don't want to lose my front place so he got on his bike and off he went and the others are going this is unfair this is bad so i just like that metaphor that bad things will happen and how do I deal with them? In fact, uh, who was it said in 1930? I've forgotten who it is. But it's, uh, the meaning of a gesture is in the response. So it's what I do to stuff that means that is the, is the purpose and the meaning, if you like. What I say to you may be one thing, but how you receive it is the meaning for you. But bad things happen. And I read this thing. This is why I like story as well. I teach story. Apparently, the stories parents tell their children affect their psychological well-being so they'll say well, oh this thing- <laughs> oh no <laughs> oh, <dear>. sorry kids <laughs> sorry kids which is you know <laughs> a bad thing happened but you know i learned from it i got up and i came back or mm. the bad things happen isn't the world terrible or people are out to get you and that's what you then take as your kind of thesis on life so improv says all oh, bad things can happen we often say you know, the lack of resources here is itself an opening. So as an artist, Simon, you might say, if you gave me a million paints and every piece of uh, hardware, software, what would I do with it? Whereas if you say, all you have is some charcoal and a paper, that's kind of easier. The restriction can be a creative liberation in a way. What do I do with this minimum resource? Now, that sort of leads us into, I guess, the question I've got in the in the back of my mind when you're speaking around uh, improv and storytelling in these workshops that you run. Was there a moment when you thought, yeah, look, improv is so relevant to the world of business? Was there what was there something you thought, ah, oh, yeah, there's a there's a connection here, or this is relevant? Was there something that made you think that? Yes, definitely. I found myself reading the business pages 
more than the arts pages in the newspapers. And then I read people were talking about organizations and management and leadership. And I thought when I teach improv, rule one of improv is listening. That's what it is. Listen. And in answer to your earlier question, basically listening will get you so far. You're looking out for opportunities. You're listening to what is meaningful to the other person. You're listening to what might connect with your experience. And so I thought that's a pretty good thing. So I thought, oh, if we just listen better, then organizations will be better. So I listened to a BBC radio program about using arts in the theatre, and that's how I got in touch with somebody at Ashridge. And so I went along on his five-day course called Leading Strategy and Change, and they said, uh, you do the afternoon on Monday. So I did some improv and then gradually realised that people were telling me, oh, you know what, this chimes with this management theory. You know, this leadership approach, that's a bit like improv. There was a whole bunch of stuff that was way beyond the simple what I felt was the importance of listening in improv turns out there's many more applications than I would have realized. But initially it was just, how do we listen better? And if we had better listening in organizations, we might get on better. We might be more creative. So I then began to learn from business school professors, but also the participants in my workshop saying, well, Oh, that's interesting because I would apply it this way and I would apply it that way. Gradually the whole thing of improv which is yes and began to have a greater resonance than i would have realized my intuitive sense of oh they could learn from this thing was borne out and then there was plenty of hard and fast evidence and writing in academia that this actually could chime and also a lot of the academic theory was that it was a bit academic a bit theoretical and people say, oh, come and do your thing because it brings it to life. When you're doing a scene where everyone says one word at a time, <laughs> it's a bit messy. But it's a bit like an organization where there's no clarity, but actually sometimes the lack of clarity can lead to creativity. So it's sort of I bring to life some of the things that people intellectually may understand. But when you're laughing and trying it out and actually getting annoyed with that person who keeps saying the word you don't want them to say, you realize that. It's both a skill, simple improv, interpersonal skill, but also a, a mindset which says, oh, right, yeah, things aren't quite as I saw them, or people will perceive things differently from me. Skills that are ever important in, I think you you mentioned it as a Veruca world. <laughs> Gosh, you have watched a lot of my videos. No, I made a joke, a terribly, you know, <laughs> foolish joke. And I, I sometimes mention VUCA. I don't know. I presume your listeners know VUCA, but I, shall I say it anyway? Yes, yeah, say it, please. Yeah, 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 the world is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. But I'll drop that into conversation. And be, what are you talking about? So I'd been at this conference, which is called Meaning at Brighton, and I called the, I kind of, said it's like the Glastonbury of business. So you had people from all sorts of backgrounds doing different types of keynotes and workshops. And I said, we live in a Veruca world. So it's just, and John, I, I can't hardly cope <laughs> with the idea that you brought back this terrible pun I made right back in my face. I told you he's I a stalker. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought it was. Where's my was trifle, a... by the way? <laughs> that's, 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 that's been uh, the Wombat 8. So. Oh, yeah, I'm getting sad now thinking about that wombat. I love wombats. 
Oh, that ah, oh. because I, I used to love koalas most, and I still do. But that that particular wombat won my heart. Well, as we say many times, this is a not-so-serious business podcast. So, Neil, what we'd like to do now is maybe start to distill some of the things that you've learned along the way and maybe some of the things we've talked about over the course of the show so far about advice we can take as individuals, as teams, and as leaders and organisations from your thoughts around improvisation and what you've touched on so far. So maybe start with individuals. There's a quote that you have, which is improv teaches us to make the best of what we are given and find opportunities in the unexpected. And then you say the new nimble is my response. So how can we as individuals bring some new nimble into our lives? Be curious. Talk to people. Talk to people outside your particular sector. Listen to what's going on. And that may mean just reading what's going on, watching how things emerge in other sectors, other organizations, talking to people that might be your suppliers, might be your customers. Start listening to what they're saying. So very much that idea of, as you say there, just noticing and actually going beyond your what might be your natural horizons of, if you're in a business, then you might be looking within the walls of that business. But you're saying, look, just get outside of that. Yeah, one of my heroes is many Professor Herminia Ibarra, Herminia Ibarra, I-B-A-R-R-A. And she is a professor. She was at INSEAD Business School in France. Now she's at London Business School. And she talks a lot about working identity. She's got this great idea of being authentic to your future self. And she will say things, talks about network density. So if you're talking only to your own team, that's not helpful. If you're not talking to your own team, but lots of people outside, that's not helpful. So start talking to people within the organization start talking to people outside the organization start talking to people nothing to do with your business but whilst also keeping an eye on the people you're leading as well so that idea of network density if it's too skewed to one area you're missing out some possibilities it's always great to talk to people who don't agree with you or don't know your world yeah that and we it's a repeated theme which comes through almost from everyone and it's come through from everything you've been saying in the world of improv you're curious so be curious have that, that eyes wide open, ears wide open, be open to those interesting things around you. To the point that you mentioned earlier, Neil, you said, how comes myself and Simon have ended up doing this? <laughs> it, it was born out of the fact, well, part, it was born out of two things. It was born out of my noticing that organisations or people within organisations just weren't curious enough. There weren't enough questions being asked in every room I sat in or workshop or session I participated in, you just see that people were just desperate to have answers rather than coming along with some great questions. And then obviously, Simon, you had that note thing that you noticed around creativity. We thought there's something here. We can bring these, there's a Venn diagram. <laughs> we call it the, yeah. the, whole, the holy trinity with uh, imagination, curiosity, and creativity. They all, as I said in a previous show, they're they're together, but they're separate, and so we're not really... <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one of the people I learned about when I was talking about improv was a man called Ralph Stacy, and he has got a model of complexity and emergence. So he's got a nice quadrant about uncertainty and disagreement. We think you shouldn't be uncertain, you shouldn't disagree. Actually, some of those can be creative. That, if it's held 
in the right way, creative tension rather than chaotic tension. And he says there's, there's kind of ordinary leadership, which is making things happen, keep things on budget, make sure it's occurring day after day. And then there's extraordinary leadership, which aren't asking questions and not knowing the answer and being comfortable holding people where we don't know what's going to happen. But in that place, if held in the right way, innovation will occur. So it is your responsibility as a leader to be asking questions. I like that. And look, I'm going to, I'm not quite as much of a stalker as John is, but I do have another <laughs> one of your quotes. And I think this lends nicely into teams and uh, quote, actually, rarely is anything that is innovated either in the boardroom or on the stage actually brand new. It's just that the dots are arranged differently. But tweaks and nudges can have devastating impact. The improv mindset starts with what is actually there and uses it to positive effect, sort of close quote. Now, if you're in a team, so you're almost in this, I guess, think of this improv space, you're in this sort of interaction. How do we bring this sort of tweaks, nudges, connecting the dots in different ways? How do we bring that into the way we interact as, as humans in organisations? Wow, that was a very good quote. Are you saying I wrote that? It sounds incredibly <laughs> impressive. I, <laughs> I want to find out where that is. Anyway, in terms of teams, just just what I'm thinking is every meeting should have some sort of value. Don't just have a meeting for the sake of it. So don't make them too long. Everyone should feel responsible for making the meeting have some sort of point. So So many meetings are just treading the same ground so everybody whether it's your meeting or not should make sure the meeting has a point and it may be the point emerges during the meeting but it isn't just kind of uh, there's two ways of destroying a meeting one is sitting back saying i don't like this meeting i'm going to slag it off to my friends afterwards the other one is dominating and sabotaging so everybody should feel responsible not just the owner or facilitator to make a meeting have some sort of productivity even if it is you don't solve the problem, but you air the problem. All right, I like that. And I would say there's not an organisation around the world that doesn't have some sort of meeting issue. <laughs> so like yeah, we've, yeah, we've all yeah. had a, we've all had a, a shit meeting or have a, a bunch of shit meetings every day. And a lot of friends who work in very large organisations say, "I get nothing done. I'm in meetings." all day so an area where it might be ripe for well, obviously ripe for innovation and nudges and tweaks dropbox cancelled meetings for two weeks and then they realized which meetings were pointless or not so every meeting should justify itself and now we're all on the internet you could the meeting doesn't have to be even people in the same space at the same time it yeah. could be an asynchronous it could be just a google doc could be a phone call could be mm. two people not 10 people Moving on from teams now, leaders in organisations, we get a lot of feedback, which is about leaders being crucial to creating the right culture, you know, the environment where things such as curiosity and creativity and imagination can flourish. What do you think are some of the pitfalls that leaders can face when trying to do this? And what do they need to look out for, do you think? I think they need to look out for their default method and find somebody with a very different method who could be their number two or three <laughs> role <laughs> model what you want, but also you realize actually I'm really good at that. And that I need somebody who's quite different from me who can be really good at that. For example, people tell me, I don't know, there's all these 
personal insight things you know the personality profile i'm a yellow mm. you're a blue i'm a red i'm a green if you're a yellow and you're all airy fairy and one all uh, make sure you've got a red next to you that <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing <laughs> make sure that you don't default and recruit people who are too much like you don't i did to see one thing about you know recruit people you don't like i'm not sure that's right but find your weaknesses and whilst you might mm. want to help yourself and one better get good at that it might be just as good to find somebody who's really good if you're a bit of a yellow or whatever get somebody who's good at spreadsheets to be uh, <laughs> in your team and if you're so good at spreadsheets same. that's fine get somebody else to be the the other kind of more charismatic flair type because lead, the leaders come in many shapes and sizes as you were saying that uh, neil it was making me think that of course and we've touched on this before is um there's an element of humility needed on the part of leaders isn't there for this stuff to happen as you say to recognize their default mode they've got to recognize their limitations leaders need to be a bit humble as well as curious yeah i might flip that some need to be more humble and others in some respects too humble they don't want to be seen to be leading too much but everyone is looking at them. They put on their idea of leadership. And some points, you, you've just got to be a bit brave and say, this is what we're going to do. So there are some who are, as you say, requiring a bit more humility. Others kind of have imposter syndrome. And I keep saying, you're pretty good at this. You do know stuff. So for some reason, this organization's made you head of this thing. I mean, they're completely <laughs> mad, obviously. But maybe maybe not. You know, what about, what, Pretend you were good at this. So there is sometimes I find leaders both think, well, I've got to know the answer to everything. No, you don't. I can't just assert my authority. Well, if you don't, somebody else will assert authority or that lack of authority will lead to mess. And this is where Herminia Ibarra is great about some point, you've got to step into the pair of shoes that you might wear in the future. And she has examples of people who, for example, we used to work with the team and I don't want to be too bossy now because they remember how I was. Well, for the sake of the team, at some point, you've got to become slightly different. You've got to emerge as a leader, which means you're slightly separate. And that doesn't mean hor being horrid, but for the sake of those around you, you've got to put on a new pair of shoes. Now, look, when we sent out to our, our listeners across the globe, that you were coming on, we sent in some questions. We have like a little bit of an, an agony art style of the time because we've got an expert on the show and yeah, people write in. So this is and helping generally with their, some of their thornier business issues, having an expert like yourself. So here's a question. Neil, I run an agricultural grain business in Western Australia and I hear that you're good at tackling teams that work in silos, which is exactly what I have. I have four teams working in grain silos two in barley, two in wheat. Any suggestions how I can improve the way they work together from Terry in Perth? Definitely. Get them to do some Morris dancing on a Friday evening. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I'd never heard the word silo used in terms of people until I started doing management training because I knew about nuclear silos. Uh, but then we're oh, working in silos. What are, what are these silos? What are you talking about silos? 
And then it's a big thing now. We're working silos. And I often say, well, that silo might be great. You know, this silo's doing really well. Then why should they bother that silo? Leave, leave <laughs> silence with your silos already. Leave that bloody silo alone, yeah. Exactly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there we go. More dancing. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and look, if uh, listening at home outside of the UK, just Google Morris dancing. It's a real treat. <laughs> like it's a, <laughs> I lived in the UK for many years and every Boxing Day we'll go down to the river in uh, Suffolk where we were and down at our pin mill and they have the Morris dancers come out and you sit around and watch it with a pint and uh, it's a very UK experience. So Google Morris dancing and maybe yeah, start that- one up in your area. Yeah. I think so. They have bells on their elbows yeah. and knees, that kind of thing. And they sort of whack each other with little sticks and wear pinafores and that type of thing. That's um, right. Obviously, it's you tough. went to a slightly more S&M Morris Dancing <laughs> Club. <than I> mean. <laughs> oh, sorry. That, that was the, the wrong club. Uh, move on. <laughs> Next question. Next, next, next question. question. <laughs> so one, uh, one here. Uh, Neil, I'm a senior politician who's recently been in the news again after one of my speeches was criticised. I think I'm the master of improv, but everyone else thinks I'm just making it up as I go along, as if that's a bad thing. Any advice? That's from Boris of London. (laughs) My advice is number your papers. If you've got a paper, the sheet, you know, number one, two, three, four. That's my big advice. (laughs) <laughs> and seriously, I do teach presentation skills and there are times you've got to have a script. So, yeah. you know, rehearse it, you fool. <laughs> and, a, and a speech often needs rehearsing and a well-written speech is a good idea. An improvised thing is different. So don't get them mixed up. Sometimes improv is the right thing. Sometimes a really tight piece of material will be what's required. So just a rapid fire round now, Neil. And my first question is, what one thing couldn't you do without your life at the moment? I couldn't do without my life. No, without, in your life. <laughs> Should we start that again? No, keep going, keep what, going. What, what one thing? Without my life, there's many things I couldn't do. Uh, what thing couldn't I do without? Okay. Box. okay, yeah. <laughs> you, you idiot. What, what's going on? What couldn't you do He's without your life? He goes along. What couldn't I do without my life? yeah with with somebody else's life if i was what i'd like if i had schrodinger's cat i would bring it back to life that's what i would do (laughs) now next rapid fire question do you have a guilty pleasure at the moment butter i like butter i put too much butter on my toast we are building the occupational philosopher's manigesto what one thing of all your learning do you think should be included People are doing their best. Never forget that. I love that. I like that. Now, is there a book we should be reading? Yes, my book is called Seven Steps to Improve Your People Skills by Neil Malarkey, available on Amazon and Kindle. Get it anywhere in the world. Seven Steps to Improve Your People Skills. If you buy the hard copy, it'll fit nicely into your jacket pocket. Okay, or a small box. <laughs> oh, yes, if you can find a small box that hasn't got a cat in it or a trifle or a catapult or some sort of nonsense. A drill or a tomato quiche. Why Why a tomato quiche? Improv. <laughs> a, a final question, Neil. This is yourself. You're in the very, very twilight years of your life and you're being uh, guided into your retirement home. 
and the nurse guides you into the lounge with all the other residents there. How would you like to be introduced to your resident retirement home resident colleagues? Here's Neil. He's he used to be funny. He still is, kind of. And <laughs> let's run with that. So, Neil, what are you up to next? And you can, this is, we've moved beyond rapid fire, but what are you up to next? What's Oh, this is where I can spruik my Duke. Um, <laughs> I, every Sunday, I'm performing with the Comedy Store Players. So if you're in London, come see Comedy Store Players. Website, comedystoreplayers.com. I'm wanting to write a book. And you know what? Whenever I turn to open a book up, I look at the acknowledgements and I think, oh, who is the writer thanking? Who's helped them through this tricky thing of writing a book, which is, can be so onerous. And so I thought I'd write a whole book called Acknowledgements, just about all the things and people I've met, about how much I've learned from this person or that place or how threads have weaved through my life. This place means something so far. I don't know if anyone's going to buy it. I did think about writing a book called The New Nimble, but there's so many things people are writing now about how we're changes in working styles that uh, I think I'll just keep the occasional blog on that one. Uh, where can, so you mentioned comedystoreplayers.com. Where else can we find you if we want to connect with you? Where's the best place to uh, come find well, you? I have a website called neilmalarkey.com and I'm on LinkedIn. My Twitter username is Neil Malarkey. My Instagram is Neil Malarkey. And so those are the best ways to say hello, really. Uh, Neil Malarkey, remember the E at the end. It's mull, as in mull things over. Lark, as in lark about, and key to unlock potential. Oh, boom, boom. You've, you've rehearsed that one before, but <laughs> I like I it. I rehearsed so. it and threw it away, and then every now and again it rears its ugly head. <laughs> Perfect timing. Now, look, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's been a lot of fun. And when we put this show together, we want to interview people who've taken the path less travelled, but also can bring that pathless traveled insight into the world of our listeners and help people in, in the world of business but also in life and, and do it in a fun way so i'm going to give you a huge big uh, tick for uh making john and i smile and laugh and uh, also <laughs> our, our readers at home and acknowledging the jig you're doing now as you uh <laughs> thank you simon and uh, by the way whereabouts in australia are you simon I'm just outside of Sydney in a little beachside town called Terrigal. So about an hour north. So a little, think of like home and away. That's sort of pretty much where we live. Thank you very much for having me. And I hope to meet you both in real life somehow, somewhere. Thank you very much, listeners. Hopefully they'll have, uh, somebody will have edited this down to something that's somehow digestible. <laughs> and Absolutely. on that. It's been, uh, it's been great. Thank you. And we were just going to say, we know this episode's going to be our Christmas episode, Neil. So this will be going out just before Christmas. And so we're going to say, have a Merry Christmas and a peaceful New Year to you and to all listeners as well. Happy holidays. See you in 2022. Hey, Simon, another wonderful guest, Neil. Very funny. Some great insights. Really interesting to hear just about how he's taken that uh, wealth of experience and knowledge of the world of improv and taken it into businesses now. As ever, what are some of the takeaways for you? What two or three things stood out for you? 
I really like that little notion of looking for nuggets. So just, and again, it's a constant theme, stay curious, but really one of those little things that you can pick up on, maybe not these huge trends we might always look for, one of those little things you can pick up in the world around you. And I, that sort of lent into that steal from anyone. So there's inspiration, information, ideas everywhere. And I really like that one around the chimp paradox where we react with our chimp or other people call our monkey brain first. So once the chimps reacted, then our more different sides of our brain can take over. So we always feign outrage first, don't we? So just, you know, take a bit of a chill pill and be aware of our our chimp brain. Uh, Yeah, so they're my three amongst many highlights. What about you? Well, I think there was something about the that networking, that noticing things and being curious outside your immediate environment. He talked about network density, the work of uh, that Hermione Biara, I think it was, but she was emphasizing the need to be within your team, but also outside your immediate team and then beyond that even further. So looking beyond your your normal horizons outside your organization, different sectors, different industries, there's plenty of places that you can take inspiration from and notice that may be useful to you. Leaders asking questions, again, that doesn't surprise me that that keeps coming forward, just that ability for leaders to be really curious, come to the boardroom with questions rather than necessarily answers. And when you do come together, that those meetings that you have, everyone feels responsible. Everyone's contributing. They have value. They have purpose. But interestingly, don't rule out the idea of just cancelling all meetings and see which ones survive. Might be quite an interesting experiment to run the same way they did in Dropbox. Or the flip side of that, not see which one survives, actually just see which ones you need. So you think, well, we needed this. So um, it's almost, uh, I guess, the opposite of survive. So you get those essential ones. And what a great experiment. Just a week. Just do it for a week and you'll get some, there'll be some great insight at the end of that. Some great insight. Yeah, what a a great show. So look, here's what we'd we'd, uh, love you to do. As always, leave a review if you can, because it helps John and I uh, reach more people and uh, zoom up the ratings chart, which is always nice. Also, jump over to our website, uh, download our Beach Yoga Guide. We've got a big badass innovation, inspiration, curiosity resource pack I'm putting together, which will be available in the new year. Also, say hello on our socials, which you can pick up on our uh, website. And um, as always, John, uh, well, I was going to say on the website, occupationalphilosophers.com. Oh, perfect, because you forgot that last time, <laughs> which I just forgot as well. So, yes, occupationalphilosophers.com. In the meantime, stay curious, make stuff, and play more. Now, just thinking about this box, John, what would have you got the wombat to do? <laughs> With the electric drill? Yeah. I don't know, probably, probably put up some shelves, maybe. Yeah, nothing worse than a lazy wombat. <laughs>